Hello and welcome to the Anishinaabe History Podcast. I'm Chris Waite. Today I'm going to talk a bit about my family lineage. To be more specific, I'm going to talk about my mom's family lineage. That's the Ojibwe side of my family. Yes, I'm a half-breed. My mom is full-blood Ojibwe, and my dad is a white guy from London, England. He's not a pure-blooded Briton, but he's pale-skinned and blue-eyed, and has even been upgraded to business class on transatlantic flights. To make a long story short, he traveled to Weagamau Lake, Ontario in the early 1970s to go where the work was, after also working for a short time in Connecticut. London, England and Weagamau Lake are worlds apart. In the early 1970s, Weagamau was just a tiny village very deep in the boreal forest of northern Canada. Why did my dad go there? Because the reservation needed teachers. He taught at quite a few reservations. I even met a chief from a reserve years later when I was in my 20s, who had asked me if I was related to his childhood teacher. He had recognized my last name, Wait. I said yes. And the chief told me that my dad was a good teacher and a good man. I felt proud. There was a lot of respect. Back in the 1970s, my mutton-chopped British dad eventually found his way to the reservation at Weagamau, where he met my mom. If fire had ever met ice, it was with these two lovebirds. My dad, on the one hand, is a proper Englishman. He has the stiffest upper lip of stiff upper lips. On the other hand, my mother became a self-medicating bipolar alcoholic. I'm the shit show in the middle. They had divorced in the late 1980s when I was still just a kid, and there's been a big hole in my chest ever since. But I don't want to talk about that. When she was young, my mom was very pretty. There's an article in the journal titled Rotunda that describes her as such. Rotunda was published by the Royal Ontario Museum. My mom assisted the author of the article, Mary Black, in her ethnographical work during the summer of 1970. My mom was helping because the Indian reservation that she belonged to at Weagamau Lake, also known as Round Lake, was being studied by an ethnographer named Mary Black. The article states, quote, Pretty 18-year-old Greta Kakakayash interpreted for her 83-year-old grandmother Rebecca, a specialist whose reputation persists. Greta says she likes hearing the Ojibwe Cree legends, though she gulps occasionally at the graphic details and rather gory themes which recur. End quote. I've never heard my mom tell these legends, personally. I didn't know that she knew them until I met a person from my mom's reserve who had collected a binder full of Weagamau Lake ethnographic information. Now I have a copy of the binder. 
There is a story in that article that my mom's grandmother told to Mary Black. My mom was the interpreter. She could speak multiple Ojikri dialects as well as English. My great-grandmother's name was Rebecca, and here is one of her stories called Sobatap and his son and his daughter-in-law, as it is written in the article. Quote, Sobatap killed his daughter-in-law while his son was busy. When his son came back, Sobatap cut the stomach out of his daughter-in-law. She was pregnant. Sobatap's son had two brothers-in-law, Nitawisak. It was their sister who was killed. When they knew that Sobatap had killed their sister, they came to see him while Sobatap's son went away again. The brothers-in-law fought Sobatap. They cut his legs off. He went around on stumps without any legs. The marrow came out of the bones of his legs. One brother-in-law picked it up and put it in the man's mouth, and he sucked it. And the brother-in-law said, Is that marrow rich? End quote. What does this legend represent? What are the lessons within the story? Why did Sobatap kill his daughter-in-law? One possibility that I can think of is that Sobatap did not want the baby of the pregnant daughter-in-law to live. But why? I can only speculate. Perhaps the baby was put there by Sobatap himself and he committed a crime to hide his crime. Perhaps not. The article does not say. But the vicious revenge committed by the brothers of the murdered daughter-in-law does speak to the hatred they felt for Sobatap after his murderous act. They cut off his legs and made him eat his own marrow. The moral of the story is, there are terrible consequences to terrible behavior, and even a father-in-law can be dangerous. This is my own interpretation. A few years after my mom translated this story for her grandmother and Mary Black, my dad arrived in Wiagamau to teach Ojibwe children the public school curriculum. My mom, before she was anybody's mom, was a teacher's aide and translator for my dad, who didn't speak a word of Ojibwe. That was in the early 1970s. The people of Wiagamau have been in that area for hundreds of years. They were there before the Hudson Bay Company had any forts. Indeed, HBC records refer to a man and his family known as the Cranes. In Ojibwe, the Sandhill Crane is called Ojijako, and Ojijakons is the plural diminutive of the root word, meaning in English, little cranes. The records called the patriarch Captain due to contemporary convention. Therefore, he was called Captain Uchijak. The root Ojijak refers to a hooking action. For instance, the word Ojibwe has the root and refers to the puckered seams of Ojibwe moccasins. Likewise, a crane hooks the fish and therefore is an Ojijak. My ancestors were the crane people. The ethnology of the cranes was originally undertaken by Dr. Edward S. Rogers in 1958. At that time, my mom was seven years old and there were only 250 people who comprised the reservation community known as Wiagamau. Wiagamau comes from the root words for round and lake, so it is known in English as Round Lake. Treaty with the Canadian government had only occurred with the people of the Wiagamau area less than 30 years prior, in 1930. That's edging towards the mid-20th century. My mom's family were bona fide bush Indians. 
Weagamau became part of Treaty No. 9 25 years after Treaty No. 9 had originally been signed by the first signatories in 1905. Weagamau was one of the treaty adhesions made to Treaty No. 9 in 1930. At that time, the Western world was still mostly in the form of religion and trade goods for bush life. Even missionaries, those adventuresome servants of God, did not really make it that deep into the Hudson Bay watershed boreal forest until after 1900. Indeed, there wasn't even a Hudson Bay trading post in the area until the 20th century, despite Weagamau being near the headwaters of streams that flow into both Hudson and James Bays. By 1958, when Rogers and Black began their ethnographic research in Weagamau, much of the planet had metamorphosed into the modern and postmodern world. And yet, in the northern forests of what was now Canada, an Ojibwe village of 250 people still lived and thought in the traditional Nishnabe way. In other words, they were still very much Indians. Twenty years later, my mom's people had evolved somewhat through the adoption of Christianity and compulsory Indian day school attendance. By 1979, the year that I was born, the community had grown to a whopping 400 people. But I wasn't born there. I was born in another province entirely. By the late 1970s, my mom and dad and older brother were on the road westward so that my dad could go where the work was. At that time, the work was in Saskatchewan, where I was born. I'm the only member of my family to have been born in Saskatchewan. But I digress. This episode is about the cranes. Dr. Rogers and his wife, Mary Rogers, ended up spending many, many years studying the Weagamau people, a couple of decades worth of studying, in fact. During some of that, my mom helped them, in part by translating. My mom has also told me about going to California at some point with Mary Rogers to do some anthropology classroom stuff. To put it simply, this ethnographical work is very important to me. But where does the crane history begin? When Rogers and Rogers undertook their study of the Weagamau people, they learned from the elders that their group had been known as the Ojijekonsak. This word means little cranes. At the Osnaburg Hudson Bay Company outpost, over 200 kilometers away from Weagamau as the crow flies, there are references to a man referred to alternatively as the Crane, Captain Uchachak, and Captain Crane. The HBC at that time referred to trappers by the title Captain. 200 kilometers is a considerable distance. Through thick forests, snow and across waterways, that's a long way to travel to sell animal pelts. Some of Uchachak's transactions are recorded in 1788, when he had three wives and 17 children. A few years later, in 1795, he had 23 children. His family was growing. Is it safe to assume that for the crane and his little cranes that life was good and perhaps even prosperous? A decade after that entry in the HBC records in 1804, 
Captain Uchachak had a cohesive trading group of trappers, to use the language of Rogers and Rogers, of 14 sons and three sons-in-law. Together, that was 18 men. That's a good-sized crew to have operating in the far north, and that was decades before the railways and the treaties and the Indian Act. In 1805, sadly, HBC records indicate that Captain Uchachak died. I don't know how old he was when he traveled on to the happy hunting ground, but he did pass on a lot of genetic material. Chimigwich Kichigumshum Uchachak. That's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite, and this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast.